0: This reading today uh, comes from Psalm 78. This is uh, the longest historical psalm um, in the Bible, and it recalls events from Israel's past and shows how God persevered with, a, with an unfaithful people, even when they, when they chronically disbelieved, and he, he then cleansed them by removing unbelievers from their midst. The psalmist here, a fellow named Asaph, Hopes that those who sing this song will never again forget the several episodes of sin and unbelief that are outlined in the first 66 verses. What we're going to be reading here now, though, the final section of the psalm, focuses on God's promise, just as we as we do here throughout Advent. Uh, this, this promise focuses on David as one of God's greatest gifts to Israel. The Lord rejected the tent of Joseph, and he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and he took him from the sheepfolds, From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people. Israel, his inheritance. And with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are so grateful that you can deal with an an unruly people with an unfaithful people. And uh, while we've been that way, Father, we're so grateful that you continually reach out to restore us, to give us great gifts. Today, Lord, we have the gift of your holy word in almost every, almost every home. And uh, we thank you that it's so available to us. Um, in some ways, however, though, we still need your guidance in revealing the meaning that's in there sometimes. And so today we ask, Father, that you would uh, till our hearts, that you would soften them to hear what um, Pastor Ryan has to share with us. And we ask that you would um, particularly put your hand upon him today as he shares that word with us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mr. H.,
1: Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We make all sorts of choices in life, don't we? Choices of where to live, of who to marry, choices of which job to work, what friends to surround ourselves with, even something as simple as this morning— And staring at the pantry, wondering what we will eat for breakfast, we make choices. We make them all the time. Some are small, like our breakfast, and some choices are much, much bigger. As I mentioned, who to marry, where to live, whether to leave that job or not for another one. Now, within all of those choices that we make, some people the Lord has ordained are naturally just more go with the flow. They don't hold things as tightly, we might say. They typically do not have as strong of an opinion on most things. I have learned after 11 and a half years of marriage that if I ask my wife where she wants to go eat, I will probably end up making that choice. Now, my wife, on the flip side, would say that I am picky about things, I am particular. And the truth is, I do know what I like and what I do not. I voice what I like and therefore generally don't have a problem making choices. But I always have a trump card when she says that I'm picky or I'm particular or dare she say that I'm persnickety. I just look at her innocently without a trace of smugness on my face and I say, but I chose you, my dear, did I not? At the beginning of chapter 8... Some chapters back, Israel made a choice. Give us a king like the other nations. Give us someone to lead us into battle, they tell Samuel. And so the Lord provides the king. He provides the one that their hearts desired, the one that had the right appearance. They see Saul. They see his tall stature, his warlike appearance, and they say, yes, he is our king. He has the look and the appeal. We choose him. So God gives the people what they want. And then, over the past five weeks or so, we've seen how that has played out. Saul is foolish. He's rash. He doesn't listen. And Saul ultimately doesn't see himself as a king under another king, but as a king who can make his own decisions no matter the consequences. So, Israel made their choice. But now, in chapter 16, God will make his choice. Last week, we saw how God had rejected Saul from being king, and this week we will see a God's selection of a new king, Israel, must come to see that rather than the answer being found in our own choices or in our own solutions, it is the Lord throughout the Scriptures who must deliver what we need. He must choose. He must provide. So let us look to chapter 16 this morning to see how he does that. If you're taking notes in the bulletin provided, I have four points for us to consider from the text. I hope to provide application throughout. So allow me to go ahead and give you these points up front. First is hope for the people. Second is a wisdom from above. Number three, a shepherd king. And four, the irony of God. First, hope for the people. I want to briefly remind us of a couple of verses from chapter 15 to better set the context of what's happening here. So look with me over in chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 to start us out. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now skip ahead to the end of the chapter, verse 34. I'm going to start reading in 1534 all the way through 16.5. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel." Verse 1 The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Point number one, hope for the people. We hit on this a bit last week, but just imagine that you yourself are in Samuel's shoes. You love this chosen king. You care for Saul. All his faults and foibles aside, you care for him. And he's foolish. He disobeys. And now he will no longer be king. And you're wondering, what will happen to the people, God? What's going to happen? Who's going to lead them? Who will be the Deuteronomy 17 king that will show them God's path? And you see the despair at the end of chapter 15 as Saul and Samuel won't really have any more of a relationship going forward. There's grief here and despair and maybe even a bit of hopelessness. And then the word of the Lord comes to the prophet of God and gives him a bit of a shove out of his melancholy. Sometimes the Lord needs to do that to us. How long will you grieve over Saul? Get up, go to Bethlehem. I have a new king for the people. Before I discuss the hope here, I want, to say, or I want to briefly talk about the grief that we see from Samuel. It is okay to have sorrow over the right things, to lament over them. Samuel here, out of deep care for the people of God, laments over their forsaken king, there is something right about this. God can bring correction to him, God can pull him out of that melancholy, yes, but friends, there's something proper about mourning for the sin that we see at times among the people of God and in our world at large. At times, for being honest, we can be so callous to what is happening in the lives of others. Our Western culture has trained us. We can care for a moment when we hear that something bad happened, but Not that deeply. And notice what I said. Samuel is not mourning over his own state of affairs. He's not experiencing grief like you and I might experience over the fact that we don't have that new car, or we only have a three bedroom house, or we probably won't be getting that thing we just had to have for Christmas. No, he's mourning over someone's spiritual state, over their spiritual state. He's mourning over what will happen to the people of God now that their king is forsaken by God. He deeply cares for the people. And friends, we have to ask, is that true of us? Are we grieved when we see those in our fellowship gossiping, slandering one another, saying this quick word about others under the veil of being worried about them? What about the rampant unbelief in the church at large in America today of those who seek to mix culture with Christianity? Even of these surveys that are done, of these broad congregational surveys that are done, where people truly do not know doctrine, have no idea of what sound doctrine is. They're on very shaky ground concerning their beliefs. Do we mourn over that? Do we have sorrow in seeing our brother or our sister in sin? Sorrow enough that we are moved to action to say something. Don't buy the lie of individualism that just says people's problems are their own. That's not true in the church of God. We care for one another. Even more so, do we have sorrow over the state of our country? Let's ignore the hundreds of millions here in the U.S. who have no love for Christ at the moment. How about the vast multitude here in our neighborhoods, here in Idaho Falls, who have no true hope because they have no true gospel. How long have we been living, and I'm preaching to myself here, how long have we been living next to that neighbor that we might even call a friend, but there are still only surface-level conversations taking place? Year after year, we're too scared to bring up things that matter in light of eternity. There's something commendable for us to learn about Samuel's care and distress here. In the midst of this hopelessness, it is the God of hope who speaks his hope-filled words to his despairing prophet, I have provided for myself a king. And a king from Bethlehem at that, pointing forward to the one who will come. God has not forgotten his people. He knows that things look bleak with Saul, but he will remain faithful to his people. Like the dawning of a new day after a night of despair, God gives hope to his prophet and ultimately to Israel. And what God is teaching, both Samuel and Israel, is that the true king never loses control of his kingdom. The true king never loses control of his kingdom. He is sovereign over it all. He will see them through it. I know in a room this size that some of you could really use some hope right now. Whether it's persistent sickness or really just the ailing of our bodies as we get older, family struggles, relational struggles with friends, or a season of depression that is affecting your entire outlook on life. You need hope. Now I could offer you a pithy statement that would make you try harder, but that ultimately won't help, because the solution for hopelessness is never found in ourselves. It's always found in God. Same as it was for Israel. He had to bring about hope for the people. And my friend, the same is true in your life. We are not promised everything we want. We are not promised the great house, the sleek car, the perfect spouse, the perfect children. I mean, we never put our hope in any of those things. But for those who trust in Christ, we are promised and given Christ, Jesus Christ. And day by day as we walk with him, we learn that he is enough. He is our hope. So the Christian can feel despair, yes. Can feel melancholy, yes. But they are never characterized by it in their life. The Christian always has hope. It is as the great hymn says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You must hold that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must hold that to be true. You must appropriate that by faith to be true for you. Rest in Christ. He is your hope. Look to him in the word and in prayer and in encouragement from the saints in here. Trust and rest in him alone. Point number two, wisdom from above. Wisdom from above. God will provide hope for his people here, yet it will not be through whom they think. God will teach Samuel and us here about what it means to not just see with physical eyes, but to see with spiritual eyes. Look with me, verse six. When they came, he, this is Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. You would think that after what happened with Saul, that Samuel by now would have learned his lesson, but he's still wanting the one who looks the part of the king, the one who will strike fear in the other nations. Eliab seems to be Samuel's first choice. Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. If Saul, as I said some weeks back, was probably the center for Israel's basketball team, here we have the star quarterback in Eliah. But no, this is not the man. In that sermon as well, a few weeks back, I remarked how we are so quick to judge based on appearances alone, so quick to place the label on someone, so quick to make choices on friendships, on employees, you name it. In this text in verse 7, it strikes us to the heart. For sure, we can mock Samuel a little bit here. He should have learned his lesson. But we know we do the exact same thing. We look at what man sees. But the reality is, is that if we are impressed by someone, it does not mean that God is. And Samuel learns that here. This verse is vital. It's one of the theme verses of 1 Samuel, if you want to underline it. It's in our minds as we experience the tall Saul from previous chapters. It's in our minds with David in the coming chapters. Then later on, 2 Samuel, it's in our minds with Absalom as well. The Lord looks at the heart. And I want to clarify this in two ways. I want to clarify this. First, based on this passage, we cannot conclude that God opposes a fine appearance or handsomeness or beauty. All of humanity is created in the Imago Dei and therefore has intrinsic worth and value and beauty. That's not the point of this verse. In a moment, we're even going to see David himself called handsome. So it's not that God is saying ugliness is what it means to choose someone. Rather, the point is this. External appearances neither qualify nor disqualify. It simply does not matter in God's economy. It's not the basis for his selection. God, as we saw last week as well, is after the heart. He will empower the person. Although our eyes might look at someone and think, there's no way. There's no way they can do that. There's no way that God could use them. There's no way they can do that. Yet, God empowers them. God chooses them. God enables them. So second, though, in light of this verse, in verse 7, David was not sinless. I realize this is an obvious point, but I have to say it. He was not sinless, yet God will choose him. David's sin is coming, really, really bad sin, sleeping with Bathsheba, having Uriah killed, but he's repentive. he's submissive, he knows he must rely on God, and most importantly, again, he is chosen by God. And so we can be tempted to read this, that the Lord looks at the heart, and we can think, oh, well, Saul was bad. He saw in his heart that he was bad, and and David was good. He saw that David's heart was good. That's why he chose David. But that's not the thrust of Scripture. It's not because David is a great guy, but because God has chosen him, and he will take responsibility for his chosen king. Some of you run companies, or you manage companies, or you manage at your company, and you hire those beneath you for specific jobs. Let's imagine that in your company you have a vital role that has to be filled. This role is vital to the company continuing and having great success in the coming years. It's important to what you are doing, and so you post on Indeed, I don't know, whatever those websites are, you have those who are helping you to get the word out. But this one, you're gonna be involved with yourself. It's that important. And so people from all over the world apply. They send you their resumes and all that they've done, their education and their experience, and you narrow it down to this short list. You narrow it down to the top candidates. And then you interview them, one after another. And you hear their strengths and their weaknesses. You hear them say in the words of Michael Scott that their weaknesses are that they work too hard, they care too much, and sometimes they can be too invested in their job. You get through all of that. And the reality is, at the end of the day, they would all be horrible. They're all incompetent. They all would not do what you need them to do. They would all mess it up. Now, here are your options. First, you can just scrap it all. You can be done with it. You're saying, I'm not going to do this position. No one is qualified. There's no sense in moving forward. Second, you can lower your standards. You just don't have the right person. You can lower your standards. I don't really care. They can make a mess. It wasn't ideal. It wasn't what I was hoping for, but it's what I have. Or third, the other option is to say, this position is important. This role is vital. I'm going to come alongside them. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to train them up. In a way, that is much of what is happening here with the selection of David. As we're going to see, David is just a shepherd boy. He's probably a teenager, maybe an older teenager. He has no idea how to lead a nation, but God has chosen him. God has chosen him. He's going to equip him. The reason for hope is not David or any inherent goodness in David, but that God has made a choice. He has taken responsibility. He will make sure that his chosen king succeeds. So beware In this wisdom from above, beware the external appearances that seem to motivate us so easily. I love what one writer says concerning this passage. He says, what this text is teaching us is that sometimes God must save us from our saviors. We look and we think, yes, and God saves us from our choice. God is teaching a wisdom from above, a wisdom that does not rely on human faculties alone, but in the God of the universe So members of Christ's community, pray for our congregation. Pray for one another in here, that we wouldn't view one another fundamentally in worldly ways. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful. Romans 1, 2, and 3 makes that abundantly plain and clear. All have sinful hearts, yet God will choose. He will redeem. He will save a people for himself. And just as David was chosen for nothing inherently good within him, so the same, friends, is true of us. Just as Ephesians 1, Romans 8, 1 Timothy 1 makes very clear, so this is true of us. God has chosen us. Not because of any works, not because of anything good, not because of an inherent goodness in our heart. He did not look down the corridor of time and saw that we might choose him, no, but because of his sovereign choice. May that encourage the weary and give hope to the despaired this morning. God chose you in Christ. Point number three, the shepherd king. The shepherd king. In God's choice of a king for his people, he will choose one who will do what the king is supposed to, shepherd the people. Look with me at verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Point number three, the shepherd king. Imagine, as we read before, as Jesse is bringing each of his sons before Samuel. One son up, one son down, just waiting for confirmation from the Lord, and it doesn't come until he has to ask, is this all of them? Are there no more sons? To which Jesse replies, well, the youngest is still out in the field, but he's keeping the sheep. Samuel says, go and get him. And in this, we see that God's logic confounds human wisdom. God chooses the weak, for his purposes. Abraham, Israel, Isaiah, the disciple Paul, he chooses who we never would. And here to lead the people, he chooses the youngest, the seemingly weakest to do just the same. And David here, I love this. What's he doing? He's tending the sheep. He is a shepherd And God's king will need to care for God's people, delight in leading them, protecting them, and guiding them. It will be as David himself wrote in Psalm 23. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. That's what the king should be doing. And what was Saul doing when we were introduced to him? He was searching for lost donkeys that he could never find. He's not a good shepherd. And here we have David tending the flock as his father expected. And then verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Two things I want to note here. First, I don't understand this to be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you and I now experience in the new covenant. It points to that, yes, for sure, but it is not that. Instead, I understand this coming of the Spirit upon David to be what the Puritans would call unction, It's an anointing for service and power to do the Lord's work as he sees fit. And David will need that in the coming role that he's going to have. The Spirit leaves Saul and anoints David. Only one can have the Spirit of the Lord in the manner of the king. And that's David now. But second, notice that it says there in the text that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Everything that David will do as king all the mighty acts, all the victories in battle, all the wise leadership is to be credited to the Lord. The Lord was with him. The Lord was taking responsibility. The chief shepherd was leading his under-shepherd. And while the Spirit brings power, it also prepares us for battle, does it not? It prepares us for difficulties. We know what's coming in the life of David. The Spirit rushes upon him in the very next chapter, next week, David and Goliath. He will fight Goliath He will have endless trouble with Saul. He will be hunted, betrayed, trapped, destitute at times. God's Spirit equips us, but for often the very things that we don't want to experience. One could say, even, if I could be so bold, that the Spirit comes and trouble begins. The Lord disciplines those He loves, and Jesus promised His Holy Spirit to us as a helper. Now, when do we need help? All the time. But specifically, in our moments of need in those moments of feeling like life is a wilderness and we are wandering around think even of the lord jesus christ the spirit comes upon him visibly as a dove the father says that he delights in him and then what driven into the wilderness to experience temptation and the throes of satan it's in the wilderness that we like to think that the spirit is absent but instead what we often see in scripture that the wilderness is the scene of the spirit's presence And so for Jesus' followers, for us today, it is the same, whether we like it or not. We come to know Christ, we're growing in Christ, and then we are swamped in trouble and attacked spiritually. We feel like there's no relief. But just as David experienced this, so did Christ. Think even of the descriptions of how people viewed Jesus in the Bible. Let me just summarize a few of them. His hometown people said in Mark 6 that he's just one of us, just a normal guy. There's nothing special about him. Others in Matthew 11 thought of him as not too serious. He has too much fun with his disciples, they say. Those in John 7 would say he's not from the right place, just a backwater town. And the greatest issue throughout all the Gospels is that there is no way that the Messiah should suffer. And yet, what did the wisdom of God reveal to us? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God chose David here to lead the people, and then God also chose his own son to die for his people. God's initiative, God's prerogative, God's choice. May we be astounded this morning all the more at the king who reigns today and will one day come back to reign with his people, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him, the great shepherd of our souls, who leaves the 99 to go after the one. Who goes after you? Point number four, our last point the irony of God. The irony of God. Much of the Old Testament has irony. Simple definition is a state of affairs that is deliberately opposite of what one expects. Much of the Old Testament has irony, and it is a joy to see how God uses it in the lives of his people. From the garden, To Pharaoh, to even God's giving over of Israel to their idols, to even the irony that we saw in our study of the book of Judges. God uses irony to awaken his people. And here, in 1 Samuel 16, he uses it to reinforce his choice of king. I'll start reading in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, and prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and Yahweh is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed him. In verses 1 through 13 of this chapter, God chooses David. And then in verses 14 through 23, Saul chooses David. We're going to get to that irony in a moment, but I want to explain a few things here in the text. Verse 14 is probably grabbing all of our attention. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. God removes his spirit from Saul. This is tragic. I don't want to rush past those words right there. The only figure, Saul, the only figure in the Old Testament to be described as having God's spirit removed from them in this manner. And Saul, if you want to skip ahead and look real quick, Saul's even aware of this himself as God's word tells us in chapter 18, verse 12. He knows that the Lord has removed his spirit. I can't imagine the feeling. So God rejects Saul and anoints David. And then to further his purposes, God sends a harmful That's a nice translation. More literal is an evil, raw spirit. God sends an evil spirit upon Saul. What do we do with this? Some take this today as a way of saying that Saul was afflicted in his mental health. That today we have categories for that. We know how to describe it. And so clearly that's what's happening here. Saul had some sort of mental disorder. I don't think that's it. I don't want to go beyond scripture, but I don't want to undermine it either. God is sovereign over all. And when you're putting certain passages together, you recognize that he has his heavenly counsel. He rules the supernatural realm. He rules over all. And this evil spirit, I understand, to be more associated with a demon, with a fallen angel, one that followed the accuser, followed Satan. And so God sends this evil spirit for his purposes, this it is as Martin Luther said, I think even Daniel said this some weeks back, the devil is still God's devil. And so he sends this evil spirit to accomplish his purposes, which are in part to bring David into Saul's awareness. He is moving forward with David's anointing and him becoming king. So Saul is afflicted. He's tormented it away, mentally, spiritually, maybe even physically. We aren't sure, but this is God's doing. And so he needs help. And his advisors offer up someone. Notice how David is described by Saul's attendant in verse 18. I think there clearly had to be some delay between verse 13 and verse 18. I think David has matured now because his reputation has grown. Verse 18, he is skillful in playing. He's a man of valor, of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. He's young, yes. But now his reputation has grown and they send for him. And he comes and he plays. I think, in light of this evil spirit, in light of what's happening here, I think how we are to understand this is that David, who was literarily and musically gifted, a genius really when you read the Psalms, is through the playing of this lyre, and I would ultimately argue through worship, ultimately to God as he has the spirit of God, here providing relief to Saul. He's providing deliverance to the current king, as in as he plays, the evil is driven out, and Saul has rest. And so I want to be careful here. Contrary to what some say or some believe, God does not just send demons upon people as consequences for their sin, spiritual warfare is real. And those indwelled by the Spirit of God are in a battle. That is us. Ephesians 6 is abundantly clear. But we must not hyper-spiritualize everything, and we must not under-spiritualize everything. We cannot read more into a text than is there. And so the supernatural is very real in the Bible. Angels, demons, and friends, we believe in God the Son incarnate, who came down, took on human flesh, and then died in our place. The supernatural is very real. But we cannot give credit to every single bad thing in life, to the devil, or to some spirit. A lot of the time, friends, it's our fallen flesh. It's our sinful flesh. Instead, we have to stay where Scripture stays. This was a specific instance that God brought about to accomplish his purposes and to bring about his chosen king. And so even though Saul finds relief here, he would even say that he loves David, he's going to come to hate him. He's going to hate the manner in which this relief comes about. He will despise him. This worship pushes back the evil. Christians today push back the evil, and yet it is despised. Is it not the same for the Christian today, for the one confronting the world in its sin? Jesus told his followers, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And we are salt on the earth, we're preserving it, we're keeping it from decaying worse than it already is, but let us not think in our minds, let us not have this little veiled hope in our minds that it is easy to be a Christian and to be respectable in the world's eyes. One of them always gives a little bit. From the business you run, to the job you work, to the neighbors you interact with, at some point they will find that your Christian beliefs are against what they stand for, and not just against, they will be appalled at what you believe. From gender to marriage to abortion, the idea of a Christian being respected in the world's eyes is rapidly deteriorating. And so will you, how will you, respond in that moment? Try to save face? Try to make it lighter than it is? Ah, we don't disagree all that much. It's just semantics. Will you capitulate? Will you bow down? Saul is thankful for the relief but he will still come to hate the deliverer, hate David. And when you live as a Christian today, at some point you will experience the same. All right, let me get back to my point. Point number four, the irony of God. I hope we see this by now. God chose David, here's the irony, and now Saul chooses David. The anointed king is now in the presence of the king that he's going to replace. Saul is looking for some reprieve, but it is the Lord who brings about what he fears the most, the removal of his kingship. And friends, this irony points us to the greatest irony that we see in the gospel. That the only way to be worthy of it is to admit admit that you are unworthy of it. Irony throughout. Irony as we meditate on the gospel that through death we have life. That through Christ's sufferings we have victory. That though the powers of Satan and sin thought that they had defeated the Messiah, he in fact was victorious through his resurrection It is, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, that none of the rulers of this age understood this. None of them understood this irony and ultimately what was happening, understood what the cross was accomplishing. And then he says this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. For the one who is not a Christian here this morning, our message probably sounds crazy to you. You, in and of yourself, are not good enough. And maybe you even know that. Maybe you know that you mess up. Maybe you know that you're not perfect, but then what do you do about it? What can you do about it? Well, here's where the irony that goes against everything the world says. Nothing. You can do nothing. There's not a work you can do to save yourself, to make yourself righteous, to deserve heaven. And you recognize that, and what you do instead, as Scripture tells us, is that you look to Christ. You bring nothing to Him, and He gives you everything. He calls you this morning to have faith. And maybe some of you are struggling in your faith. Maybe it's a weak faith that you have. Maybe you have doubts. You have questions. We all do in certain seasons of life, that's sure. But praise God that saving faith is not contingent upon the amount of faith, but on the object of our faith. Praise God it's not contingent on the amount of our faith, but on the object of our faith. Look to Christ this morning. And to the saints here, the ones who have trusted in Jesus Christ, are walking with him day by day, are not perfect, but are looking to him in repentance, never take the gospel for granted. Remind yourself of all that you have in Christ. All of the Old Testament, and yes, our passage this morning, and all of the Old Covenant promises point to and are fulfilled in Christ. Be characterized by your hope. Glory in the wisdom of God and continue to look to Jesus Christ, the shepherd of your soul. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that we as your people can come to worship you in spirit and in truth, to worship you with our church family. Father, we ascribe all praise and all glory to you, the God alone who is able to work on our behalf. And Father, we are desperate at times in our sin, to try to make ourselves more righteous, to try to save ourselves, whether knowingly or unknowingly. God, help us to recognize that in the gospel, we have nothing to offer, and you give us everything. Help us to rely on you more and more. Help us to look to the shepherd of our souls. Help us to know, Father, that we need you as king and nothing else. Be with us this morning. Would you convict by your spirit those who need convicting, and would you encourage those who need encouraging? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.